You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. Well, we've looked at the tragedy of relational poverty. And I hope you're reflecting on whether you resonate with that or is it just on maybe a little bit of an interesting thought. An ache that I experience, and all of us, I think, do to some degree, a soul ache, I sometimes call it, until Jesus returns. The ache that reveals the deep thirst in our souls, both for what's coming and for what's possible now in community. And then we looked in the session two, Hebrews 10.24, to see if we could get a little beginning vision from that one passage to help us think about what it might mean to offer a taste of relational wealth to each other's. I like the last translation by Kenneth Wiest. Several have asked how, how to spell the name Wiest. That's W-U-E-S-T. Kenneth Wiest, W-U-E-S-T. He has a bunch of, a number of books. I've got about six of his books on New Testament commentaries. <clears throat> and um, I find them very helpful. I, I find them very helpful because of his Greek knowledge that I don't have, obviously. I just depend on people that have that knowledge to learn. But may I offer one concern about Kenneth Weist's work? And, as, and the preface to all the books that I've read by uh, Dr. Weist, he claims to be offering what he calls scientific exegesis, And I struggle with that phrase. I much prefer the phrase relational exegesis. I certainly understand the scholarship that's involved in coming to the text, scholarship that I learn from Kenneth Wiest's work. But I want the scholarship to be the kind of scholarship that that arouses a profound passion for a deeper level of relationality. I've mentioned Jim Houston about 100 times, along with C.S. Lewis 200 times. But um, I don't think I mentioned this. I mentioned it to the folks yesterday at the counseling group. But um, Jim Houston wore the title. He founded Regent College in Vancouver and for a number of years, and I presume still he carries a emeritus title, of a professor of spiritual theology. And I taught in the seminary for a number of years and became very familiar with words like systematic theology, biblical theology, and a lot of other prefixes to the word theology. Um, Never became a scholarly student of those worthwhile topics, obviously. But I had never heard the term spiritual theology. And I asked Jim one day, I said, "You're, you're a professor of spiritual theology, what's that? And his response, did I tell you this already? As I was telling you yesterday, maybe. Um... He said to me, again, in his own Scottish way, and he said, yes, laddie, spiritual theology. Mm-hmm, yes. Spiritual theology is theology that actually changes how you relate. Oh, that sounds kind of important. Maybe I'd like to be a, a lay spiritual theologian. But after talking about relational poverty and our opportunity for relational wealth in the body of Christ... I come to the third topic. What's the church's opportunity in promoting that? Well, I want to speak with easily confessed 
humility. I have never been a pastor. I've done a lot of preaching, been an elder. I never had the burden of and the joy and the opportunity of pastoring a church. So what I say to those of you who are pastors, I say is simply a an outsider to all that you experience that I don't wear your shoes. So just a couple of thoughts that I want to share in this last time together that um, if they seem to be of value, then I'll be, I'll be happy. But I, as we sang the last song, I surrender all, I really was thinking, I want to surrender my final words to whatever God's purposes are. As I told the group yesterday, I really have made a decision some years ago, not too many years ago, um, that I really... And whatever future teaching or writing opportunities I have, whether to small groups or large groups or anything in between, I want to preach a message that nobody could possibly hear unless the Spirit of God is working. I don't want to preach a message that anybody can hear because the message of the gospel is foolishness to those that perish. And the message of the gospel, Sonia referred to me as a radical. Maybe I am. But the message that I'm bringing to the table as best I can is a message, is a message that is so counterintuitive to our culture. It's a message of suffering, sacrificing love and the joy of suffering, sacrificing love. And the reality to the Christian life is to be lived on a narrow road. And the word for narrow in Matthew 7 the word flipsis, and it literally means um, difficulties, trials, kind of a squeezing. As Francis Schaeffer used to say, it's a squeezing, it's like a toothpaste tube. You, you squeeze out all the life that's in that toothpaste tube so you can brush your teeth. And there a road kind of squeezes whatever is alive in you into reality as it squeezes out all the issues, not all the issues, but some of the issues of the flesh. So what can, a, what can a church do? What can a church body do? There's no more important uh, body on the planet than the church of Jesus Christ. And its power, it seems to me, depends on its high calling to center on discipling believers into becoming little Christs. Spiritual formation, relational formation seems central to the work of the church. Many other things, of course, but they flow from becoming more like Jesus. I wrote a book called Real Church. And in that book, I wrote a number of years ago, I don't know how many years ago, the title I wanted for it that did not get approved was The Church I Want to Be Part Of. And I I thought, um, I want to hopefully from the scriptures as best as I can, I want to look at the scriptures and see what maybe God is calling us to as a body of believers with the leadership of pastors and elders and deacons. What what is God calling us to, to that if that calling were really honored and implemented, what would a church look like? And I thought, if I find that church, I drive 100 miles every Sunday to go. Well, we've been involved in a number of churches, and many have been wonderful, good in many, many ways. But in our last 10 years in Denver, we lived in, or, yeah, we lived in Denver, Colorado for 25 years. In the last 10 years, we attended a small church for about 200 people. 
Uh, we left Denver three years ago to move to Charlotte, North Carolina, um, partly because we have a younger son who lives there with um, three of our granddaughters that we hadn't seen very much of since we were in Denver and they were in Charlotte. So three girls that are now 15, 14, and 10. So we tell people that we moved to Charlotte to be adored. <laughs> and yet we discovered they're teenagers. Um, so it's going reasonably well. <laughs> but in the book of Real Church, I, I thought about, well, what the, the church in Denver that we were in for the last 10 years, it really came so close to the vision that I've had that is just my own very limited vision. I just offer it as a suggestion, hardly definitive. But in the book Real Church, I suggested I'd like to see a church stand on four pillars. First, I'd like to be the, see this church committed to spiritual theology, a term I just quoted Jim Houston's rather easily stated definition Spiritual theology, a theology that brings life to the soul. Because I would argue that there are some theological presentations that simply puff up with knowledge. And I, I, I hold different positions. I hold certain positions on, millennialism, on, on uh, a millennial view. That's not my topic today. Um, but, but I've heard teachings on, uh, on different millennial views and I've heard the debates between Calvinism and Arminianism and I've heard a lot of these things and I've wrestled with it and I have my own positions. But it's, I found it so easy that the positions that we hold and the doctrinal statements that we put on our brochures really could become points of um, proud defense as opposed to just a release of what's most alive in us. So I want spiritual theology to be at our issue. And even whether you're talking about your millennial views or your Calvinistic or Arminian views, whatever the Reformed views or otherwise, um, but when you exegete the Scripture, and if you really believe that they are love letters, then it seems to me that when I teach a, a Bible class or preach a sermon, and this is an old way of thinking, and I think it's a true way of thinking, but it's not a new one for me at all, not new to either, any of you either, I want that truth to inflame me before I speak it. And even this morning, as I got up, looking at my notes that I had prepared over the last couple of weeks for this morning's first presentation, I woke up at about 4.30 this morning, I looked at my notes, and they didn't feel alive. So I tore them up and sat and wrote everything else from 5.30 till about 8. And it felt alive to me. Spiritual theology, what is coming out of somebody who's teaching that which brings life? I did a Bible conference at the Billy Graham Training Center two weeks ago on the book of Jude. There's 25 verses, one chapter, obviously. And I gave four hour-long presentations of the book of Jude, and it wasn't too difficult because very few folks have read Jude, so I could say whatever I wanted. <clears throat> but I wanted to say what was in the book of Jude, and one of the phrases that caught me that I spent some time on, he, verse 3, I think it is, maybe it's verse 4, I forget now. Um, he talks about the false teachers that the people were being corrupted by. They're in danger of being corrupted by in this one church, a little north of Jerusalem, 2,000 years ago. Um, 
was a church where the leaders, some of the false teachers, were perverting the grace of Christ into sensuality. And the phrase perverting the grace really got to me. Um, and I wonder if in our culture we're, there's, a, there's danger in the, in the evangelical church, in the Christian church, of perverting the grace of God into what I might call casual Christianity. Hey, the blood's covering you, so sin isn't that big of a deal. Hey, the more you sin, the more grace abounds. Of course, Paul follows that up, up that verse with what? In Romans 6. I'm not telling you that that takes in lately. But that's casual Christianity. It's perversion of grace or counterfeit Christianity. It's not spiritual theology. It's false theology that basically says that um, what the Christian life is all about is the blessings of God to make life more comfortable. I think there's some, some television preachers that preach counterfeit Christianity. If this is inappropriate to share, forgive me, but I just watched a video of Benny Hinn, who for years had been preaching basically a prosperity gospel. Are you aware that he recanted of that recently? And he apologized, saying that I've misread the scripture. I no longer believe one of his favorite phrases in the little video that Rachel and I watched together was, um, the gospel's not for sale, and I've offered it for sale. Give me $100, God will turn it into 1000 and all that sort of thing. That's counterfeit Christianity, and Benny Hinn apparently is, is acknowledging that. And the last perversion of grace that's occurred to me that's sweeping our culture very subtly, because Jude's saying that these false teachers are creeping in unnoticed, and therefore seducing us into this might be the truth. And the third, after a casual and counterfeit Christianity, that what occurred to me that current perversions of race in our modern culture might be called exciting Christianity where there's just generated excitement over poorly understood truth as to deep passion over profoundly understood truth. I'm not against excitement, not, not against excitement and passion. I want us to be alive. And um, I wasn't raised in a hand-raising culture, but I've got no problem with people raising their hands. But my version of raising hands is more like this, you know. Remember I was preaching at the... Some years ago at the Billy Graham Training Center, a weekend Bible conference, and my parents, still alive obviously, were there, and there was a guy in the, in the audience there um, had been a former student of mine, and he was there with his wife, and I knew that he had been diagnosed with brain cancer, and he was going to be dead in about two or three months. As I was preaching, I was alive. I really was. My goodness, thinking about my brother sitting out there, death coming up, and I preached with some real passion about the truth of God, and after it was over, my very reserved British father came to me and said, Larry, tonight you preach with power. And then he looked around to make sure nobody was listening. And he said, Larry, the power was so rich, I almost raised my hands. <laughs> well, I'm doing a little bit better. If you're doing better, praise the Lord. But I think spiritual theology is supposed to arouse something alive in us. And I wonder if that needs to be thought through as the first pillar of what the pulpit is all about and what the leadership of the church is all about. Preaching spiritual theology, including, of course, systematic. 
Spiritual theology is, is built on systematic theology and biblical theology and eschatological theology and all the other theologies. But it, if it doesn't come into spiritual theology that has a life to it, then you're not preaching the Bible. That's the first pillar. The second pil- pillar is if you preach th- spiritual theology, what you're going to arouse is a desire to be spiritually formed. Uh, a church that is built on the pillar of spiritual theology, then secondarily, but just as importantly, is built on the theology of becoming more like Jesus. We were just singing about it. Lord, make me more like Jesus. That's not a cliche. That's supposed to be a daily o- preoccupation. What does it mean to become more like Jesus? And if we start thinking about that, we realize that's really hard. Again, if you can bear with another Lewis quote, he says this, that no degree of heroism or holiness achieved by the greatest of saints is beyond the reach of any of us. I sat with J.I. Packer in Holland some years ago. And Dr. Packer, marvelous man of God, he was sharing with me some of the professors at Regent College. They were inviting me to come and to possibly join the faculty at Regent. And as he was talking about different professors there, he was sharing that they have a real ethos, a real community, a way of relating as professors that are committed to spiritual theology and spiritual formation. He didn't use those words, but that's what he was saying. And then he spoke about another professor, and he suggested some concerns with this brother, another professor whose name I didn't know. And the thing that amazed me, you just have to take my word for this because I was there listening to Dr. Packer as we were having a three-hour breakfast. And he, as he was talking about this one brother in somewhat critical terms, what really occurred to me, and just trust me, this is true, it became so obvious to me that if that brother had been there, he would have felt loved by Dr. Packer. How on earth do you point out of somebody's difficulties and failures with envisioning love? Are we committed to becoming that kind of person, spiritual formation, relational formation, even being able to say the hard things out of a spirit of envisioning, spiritual formation, relational formation, becoming more like Jesus, willing to sacrifice and to suffer for the sake of the gospel, and the sake of the kingdom, the sake of others, spiritual theology, spiritual formation. And the degree to which you become aroused and interested in, profoundly interested in, passionately consumed by the prospect of spiritual formation, the next, thing's, the next thing that's going to occur to your soul and develop in your community is spiritual community. What are we talking about? Spiritual community, spirit-led community. We often hear, we talk about spiritual community having a safe place for people to share their deepest struggles, their failures, their doubts. But I think the word safe needs to be carefully defined. And Narnia helps me with that. Lewis again. You might recall the story, I think it's in the, the first of the seven Narnia series, in which it's Lucy, if I'm getting my memory correct, is approaching Aslan the lion. But she's scared to come close. And she turns to um, Mr. Thomas, I think, and says, referring to Aslan, obviously the Jesus figure, is he safe? Remember what the response is? He laughs. He says, no, he's not safe, but he's good. So I define safety, offering a safe community for people to grow, 
as a community where we're safe for whatever God is longing to do in our souls, which sometimes is painful. So it's not safe, meaning the freedom of ever experiencing pain and difficulty. Because he's good. And God is entirely safe for the good work that he's doing. But that good work can be painful in my soul. Remember when he stripped, when Aslan stripped off of Edmund the, the crust that was on his soul. Spiritual theology, spiritual formation, spiritual community. There's four thoughts, that I, or three thoughts I want you to think of. That the degree to which those become a, an ongoing, increasing, deepening reality in a local body of believers, that I believe that releases spiritual mission. Which includes going to Africa to dig wells. Which includes feeding the hungry and housing the homeless and all the good things that we sometimes live under the label of uh, social justice. Not opposed to that, but I think one of the difficulties with what is often recognized in our culture today as the missional church is we become the missional church without the first three pillars. And then I think we're a little bit more than a sanctified Red Cross. But with spiritual theology and spiritual formation and spiritual community, out of that flows missional, spiritual mission, then we're doing what a non-Christian organization cannot do. They can provide homes for the homeless. They can provide food. They can do all sorts of things. But if you're a Christian providing disaster relief, you're doing it with a very different attitude than those that are non-believers offering disaster relief. Brad Pitt at the hurricane in Katrina in New Orleans, he contributed a million dollars to Katrina rebuilding, to the New Orleans rebuilding. I think that's wonderful. But a Christian does it with a whole different energy. Which depends on spiritual theology, spiritual formation, and spiritual community. Only then does spiritual mission become legitimate, it seems to me. So that's the first thing I'd like to think about is what a what a church needs to be thinking about if we're going to provide some relational wealth to the spiritually impoverished community of believers. But the obstacle, as I ponder this, the obstacle to, to doing this, this glorious thinking that seems so out of reach or so difficult, so easily resisted, I would suggest there's many ways to describe the resistance to the kind of thing I'm talking about, but one that I think is rather common, and I can look in a mirror and recognize what I'm talking about. My simple phrase for it is premature contentment. It's a tragedy for a believer to be contentment, content in the sense of complacent with where you are spiritually. It's right to be grateful, marvelously grateful, for, the, for where God has brought you to this point. I've been a Christian now for close to 70 years, 68 years. <laughs> I got saved when I was eight years old. And I've told the story often, it just occurs to me now, I was at a boys' camp. I was eight years old and away from the first time from home for a two-week boys' camp. And one night, the second week, big old campfire, the flames were shooting high in the sky. And all us boys, about 50 or 60 of us, were gathered around this huge bonfire. Counselor got up. He said, boys, look into the fire. 
Boys, you have a choice to make. Are you ahead of me? Trust Jesus or burn in the fires of hell forever. And I thought, that's a no-brainer. <laughs> so I got saved. I believe I did. But my goodness, I was a brand new baby. I had a lot of growing to do. Now I'm 75. I guess I'm done growing, huh? Man, I day. You know, every honest believer says if you've got much further to go than you've already come. That's so easy for me to say. That doesn't require humility, that requires reality. Premature contentment. Do we have any understanding of what it would mean to be formed like Jesus? I'm not there, but I'm forming by the grace of God. John of the Cross, St. John of the Cross, so well known for the phrase dark night of the soul, a man who suffered deeply during his life, a man who became so wise and mature that he became spiritual director for Teresa of Avila. If you're familiar with that wonderful lady from earlier centuries who wrote a book called Interior Castles, another work. John of the Cross looked at his fellow monks and other people that he was ministering to. And one of my favorite sentences from John of the Cross in one of the books that I was reading, he says this, O soul, called to greatness in your soul, what are you doing? I'm called to so much more than I am today. That isn't discouraging. That isn't putting down gratitude for the growth that's already occurred. But oh my, how much further do I have to go? So if we're going to become a church of spiritual theology, spiritual formation, commitment to that, a spiritual community released into spiritual mission, one of the challenges we have is too many Christians, it seems to me, um, are kind of okay with where they are and they're loving pretty well. They're good to people. They have devotions every morning. They don't miss church. They're faithful to their spouse. They pray for their grandkids every day or training up their kids as best they can, so they're doing just fine. And my thought is, oh, soul, what are you doing? Look in the mirror and say, soul, you're really complacent with where you are? No. So what can we do to maybe uh, shatter some of the complacency without just yelling at people? Well, I have two suggestions. And if this sounds a little esoteric, bear with me. I, along with my wife, were very pleased to be in this church in Denver for the last 10 years because pastoral leadership was profoundly committed to Trinitarian theology. My younger son was leading a Bible study to a group of about 40 men at a, at a club up in Mooresville where he lives, north of Charlotte. And he was introducing a seven-week, every Saturday morning Bible lesson on Trinitarian theology to 40 guys, several of whom, not many, were pretty biblically literate, but a third of 30 of them were pretty new believers and really didn't know the Bible much at all. But they'd been in church for a number of years, and not many years, but some, growing, of course, thanks to church, but a long way yet. And my son, Ken, said, how many of you have given serious thought to, Trini to the Trinity? And not a hand went up. How many of you have heard teaching on the Trinity? Not, not a, I think two hands went up. 
why, is, why do I think Trinitarian theology is so important? Well, here's an awkward sentence, maybe. If you believe in the Trinity in a way that I want to just very briefly describe, I'm not going to give a lecture on Trinitarian theology. It would take two months and a better mind than mine. But if you believe in the Trinity, that God exists as three distinguishable persons, but there's one God, then you believe that final reality, now listen to a crazy sentence, final reality is not propositional, it's passionate. Final reality is not a bunch of sentences defining truth. Final reality is not a doctrinal statement as important as doctrinal statements are. But final reality is not propositional. Propositional, a word just meaning sentences. It's not a bunch of truths articulated. Final reality is passionate love in a community of three people. I've often done this, three divine persons. I've often done this over the years when there's been audiences of this size, what, 150 or whatever it is today, I don't know. But when I've been speaking to audiences of three, four hundred, never did it with larger audiences in this particular way. But I've said to them, I want you to envision what, of course, you can't envision, but try to do it. I know you can't, but do, do what you can. What was it like for God before he created anything? We all agree that God is the only uncreated being ever. Everything, every angel, every planet, every animal, every tree, every person, everything that now exists was once not here. So there was an eternity past. This is beyond our mind ability to understand. There was an eternity past when there was only God. What was it like for God to be God when there was nothing and nobody else? And I asked people to write on a piece of paper whatever word they thought would describe God in eternity past before there was anything created. Do you know the most common word I got back? Lonely. You don't know Trinitarian theology if you say that. They were delighted to be with each other. They loved, as Lewis puts it, that if you believe in a monotheistic God, it's a, you know, one God, not three persons, but just one God, then what you have to believe, because love cannot exist without someone to love, that God then became love when he created me. Well, that's not true. He's been the loving three-person God in eternity past. God is love. I'm going to talk about that just for the next few minutes, and if this in any way intrigues you, and it might or it might not, I want to recommend a couple of books. If you were to buy one book that can serve as a primer on Trinitarian theology, and even if you're well-versed in Trinitarian theology, this is a wonderful summary of it. A book by an author named Michael Reeves, R-E-E-V-E-S, and the book is called Delighting in the Trinity. I'm seeing a couple of head nods out there. Yeah, you like that? Isn't that a good book? The guy's a scholar, but he, he talks very accessibly. He has some humor in it, but never irreverent, never inappropriate. And he's very familiar with the history of Trinitarian theology, and it's just a wonderful book. And that's a good book to, to get. A book that I just came across about a, uh, several months ago, a professor at Gordon Conwell Seminary, actually in Charlotte, a man named Donald Fairburn, F-A-I-R-B-A-I-R-N. Looks like it should be Fairbairn, but I think it's pronounced Fairburn, Donald Fairburn. has a book called Life in the Trinity. And he is exploring Trinitarian theology with the help of the patristics, the early church fathers. Irenaeus, Athanasius, Cyril of Alexandria. And it's a very, again, he's a top-level theologian, but very, very readable. 
And that's been a very profound book for me and in certain ways I don't have time to discuss now. But the third book that I want to mention, there's many more, but this is the third. A guy named Darrell Johnson, D-A-R-R-E-L-L, double R, double L, Johnson, has a book called um, Experiencing the Trinity. When I read the book, I was so drawn to it that I was really hoping I could meet Darrell sometime. I knew he was a professor at Regent College. And shortly after I read the book, as God would have it, I got a letter in the mail inviting me to come speak at a pastor's conference at Regent College. And the letter was from Daryl Johnson. He was like, ooh, how nice of you, Lord. So I um, wrote back. And um, maybe I called him, I forget. But I said I'd be very happy to come on one condition. And he presumed I was going to tell him my fee. Because I guess that happens a lot. And I said, no, the condition isn't my fee. If you want to pay me, that's fine, understood, but I'm not asking for that. But what I'm telling you, I will come only if you're going to be there. I want to meet you. And he said, I'm moderating the conference. I said, I'll come. So I went. And I was one of three speakers. And each time one of us, as the speaker is finished, I'll just talk about my experience. The other two had the same experience. I would finish my presentation. I had several presentations to give to about 200 pastors. And then I would close in prayer and sit down. And then Daryl would get up and he literally would do this. And this is just, you had to be there to appreciate it, but I'll give you a little impersonation. Daryl would get up afterward and he would stand in front of the 200 pastors after I prayed and sat down and he would stand there like this for two minutes. That's five seconds. Can you imagine two minutes? And I'm sitting in the front row thinking, do you have a headache? I don't have a clue what the guy was doing. I figured he was praying. I, I didn't know what. And that friend of mine talked to me about, no, he knew Daryl well, and he said, what Daryl is doing, he's eavesdropping on the Trinity. What? That sounds out of reach mysticism for me at first. Is that mystical, crazy? Not with, not with Daryl. But Daryl just is listening to what kind of conversation the Father, Son, and Spirit might be having as they listen to this guy named Crab give this talk. And after listening for two minutes, he would then say, I think what our God wants us to hear from what our brother Larry has shared would be the following. And then he summarized my talk brilliantly in just a couple of moments. That was just amazing to me. Because I've had many experiences where I've sat down and the moderator gets up and says, thank you, um, uh, Dr. Crabb, thank you, Brother Larry. I think what you were trying to say, and then he gives his own sermon, which irritates the heck out of me. <laughs> if you wanted to preach, why'd you have me get up? Go ahead and preach. But not Daryl. So his book, Experiencing the Trinity, is quite good. I mean, it's just wonderful. So let me just say just a couple of sentences that many of you are familiar with, I suppose, but just a few little quick little thoughts. We, we believe, we all believe, that the Father is fully God. And we believe the Son is fully God. And we believe the Spirit is fully God. There are them, those in the early days, the church fathers, that believed that the Father was one-third God. Um, And they put it in different ways, but they sometimes taught it as, well, there are three gods. No, there's one God. But the teaching of there's three gods is called tritheism, obviously. 
Other people took the position that there's, only, there's one God, but he appears in three different forms. Not distinguishable persons, but three different forms. That's called modalism, three modes of realizing who God is. But the great teaching of the early fathers as Athanasius led the way was to realize that no, God is, the Father is fully God, the Son's fully God, and the Spirit is fully God. So how can they each be fully God and be one God? Well, that's still a mystery beyond any of our comprehension. But I, I want to suggest that back in those early days, the question they were asking, well, what is the nature of God that each of the three persons fully share? Well, Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian that America produced, maybe the greatest theologian America produced, he came up with something that kind of shook the, the theological world on Trinitarian thinking. And he said, I don't think we should be talking centrally about the nature of God because that's kind of a static thing. You know, this is some kind of metal, this is wood, this is leather in my Bible. Um, rather than nature of leather or, or, or wood or plastic um, or metal, whatever it is, rather than the nature of these three things, don't we realize that God is a live, throbbing, dynamic person? He's God. And rather than asking what is the nature of God, how about asking, and he came up with this crazy phrase that takes a while to digest. He says, I want to ask, Edward speaking, what is the dispositional ontology of God? And of course, that thrills everybody's heart to hear that. Um, but what it means, you know, ontology means being and disposition, what you're inclined toward. What is the essential being of God that's inclined in a certain direction? And what Edwards was teaching was that the Father is fully God because he's fully love, a commitment to the well-being of others at any cost to himself. The Father suffered while Jesus was on the cross. He paid one, can I put it to say, without being irreverent, one hell of a price. Jesus played, played clearly the hell of the price. Because for three hours of darkness, 12 to 3, he suffered the onslaughts of the devil. The son has a disposition, dispositional ontology of God. His being is entirely, without any compromise, inclined toward giving others whatever is needful for them at any cost to himself. The spirit, the same. They're one God. They share the exact same dispositional ontology. And then the other fancy word I want to throw out that helps me understand Trinitarian theology. And I think this should be taught in the church. I really do. And not a matter of big words and all that, but rich thought. Theologians have come up with the word perichoresis, P-E-R-I. It's like in perimeter, means around, about. And then choresis comes from the word choreography, the idea of dance. And the word literally kind of means dancing about. Perichoresis, P-E-R-I-C-H-O-R-E-S-I-S. -E -E and the idea, to put it in its simplest form that I understand at all, is that perichoretic relating is, is relating where what is fully alive within me because of the Spirit of God moves into you in such a way that it penetrates into your soul as it pours out of mine and it animates your soul as it animates mine as I deliver it. So perichoretic relating is interpenetrating and interanimating. There's a life to it. There's a dynamic to it. There's a power to it. And I've had moments, I wish I could say I've had dozens. I wish I could say I had hundreds. I wish I could say I had thousands. But I've had several moments 
where I've been with people and it was so clear paracritic relating was happening. Something was alive in me that was coming out of me that was penetrating that person's soul and I was feeling joy as it was pouring out of me and they were feeling joy as they were receiving it. They were animated. They were enlivened and there was, there was penetration in, from deep parts within me and the deep parts within them and that to me is the essence of spiritual community. Can we even think in those categories? Well, that's my five-minute summary of Trinitarian theology. <laughs> There's a lot more to it. But that's just a beginning way of, of thinking and just suggesting that if we can bring that down, not down at all, I don't like that phrase, if we can bring that into our way of thinking, it's going to give us some understanding of what it means to, to live out Hebrews 10.24. Can we start thinking about how the Trinity relates that is now as possible because of John 17, the Father, glory you gave me, I've given them, so they can relate perichretically and they can relate out of the dispositional ontology of God, a commitment to the well-being of another at any cost to myself. That to me is the implications of Trinitarian theology and that makes it spiritual theology. The second theological category that I want to suggest, I believe it's very, very necessary for the church to be very clear on the essence of New Covenant theology. My understanding of counseling is built on the two foundations of Trinitarian theology and New Covenant theology. And by New Covenant theology, I, I mean to try to organize it into, into something that could be communicated a little bit. I believe there are at least four elements to New Covenant theology. It's a new covenant in contrast to the old covenant. Remember the old covenant? Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 9.29, if you carefully follow the terms of this covenant, everything you do will prosper. The old covenant, get it right, life will work. What was the problem with the old covenant? None of us gets life right. God gives two grades on the test, 100 or zero. And if I think I made 95, I'm scored zero in terms of my value before God or my right to be into heaven before God. But I've been given a new purity under the terms of the new covenant. The new covenant is not get it right and life will work. The new covenant is not obey God and nothing will go wrong in your life. That isn't the way it works. The new covenant is I, I've been given a new purity. Start with that. Because I can't get it right. I don't get it perfectly right any day of my life. I'd like to think that I get some things right. By God's grace, I think sometimes I do. So do you. But whether I'm doing right or not doing right, I've been given a new purity, meaning God looks at me as in Christ and therefore loves me every bit as much as he loves Jesus. That's a miracle of grace. That's my new purity. And I'm covering this very, very simply. I hope not simplistically. Second element of New Covenant theology is a, is a new identity. I'm a son of God. You're a daughter of God. You're a son of God. I shared with you last session, I think, or one session, that Rachel, my wife, has been sexually abused. And when she shared the abuse with me many years into the marriage, my first thought was, honey, maybe to be helpful to be in a sexual abuse recovery group. And she said, I will never join that group. 
and I thought she was just scared to do so. There's a place for sexual abuse recovery groups. I'm not putting them down, but Rachel had, I thought, a very brilliant comment. Her response was, honey, I don't want to be a part of a group of women who identify themselves as sexual abuse victims because I see myself as God's beautiful daughter because of my new purity. And by the way, I've been sexually abused, but that's not my identity. Have I been victimized? I have. Am I a sexual abuse victim? I am. That is not my identity. I am God's daughter. That's my identity. By the way, I was sexually abused. That's crucial. You know how I got over my stuttering? I was identifying myself as Larry Crabb, the stutterer, when I was a kid. That's who I was. I was a stutterer. Graduate school, my fifth year of grad school, walking down the aisle or in the in the in the hallway of the counseling center where I was doing my internship, and Dr. Eight, A-T-E, an appropriate name for this man, he ate up his supervisees. He was the one supervisor that we didn't want to have in our internship. He was kind of a brusque fella. I was walking down the hallway, and there was Dr. Eight walking the other direction. He knew my name, I knew his, and he said in his own gruff way, hello, Larry. And I responded, hello, Dr. Eight. And he said, you stutter? I used to stutter too, and I quit. Why don't you? And he walked away. And I really haven't stuttered much since. I don't recommend that as treatment for stuttering. Don't misunderstand me. But I believe what I was left with was the idea that either that guy's the biggest jerk in the world, or he's onto something. And what occurred to me is, in a brand new way, and I'm crediting the spirit with this, not Dr. Raid, but I realized I was Larry Crabb the stutterer. But I began saying, no, no, I'm Larry Crabb, God's son, and by the way, I stutter. And just that realization freed something up in me. And I really have lost any problem with stuttering based on that identity. Third thing, we're thirsty for God. We have a new purity. We have a new identity. We have a new appetite. An appetite that is in me that is a deeper thirst for God than I have for anything else. Oh, community of God, arouse that in me as you pay careful attention to me and stimulate me to love and good deeds. And of course, the last thing is a new power. The Holy Spirit is within me. A new, a new purity, a new identity, a new appetite, a new power, the indwelling Holy Spirit. Some of you are familiar with Fyodor Dostoevsky, the great Russian writer who wrote a number of novels, his most famous one, The Brothers Karamazov. And in that novel, he has a bit of a hero, spiritual director named Father Zosima. And my favorite quote, I think, in the whole book, Father Zosima says, I'm often asked, what is hell? I believe hell is the suffering of being unable to love. If that's true, then a taste of heaven now is the joy of being able to love because of the Holy Spirit, a new power. So what I suggest, church, pastors, elders, think about New Covenant theology, maybe a sermon series on it, maybe a Sunday school class on it, New Covenant theology, maybe a series on Trinitarian theology, getting our people, and maybe you're already doing that, that's wonderful, 
But with spiritual theology, bringing these two categories of theology to bear on people's lives, they create a vision for what relationality could be. And then, then there's a hunger for spiritual formation. And then that leads to a kind of spiritual community. And, and then we want to get together and obey Hebrews 10.25. We want to get, meet together in a way that allows us to live out Hebrews 10.24. That includes lunches and good times and, and small groups and and if we get together in small groups, I think that small groups have a potential that is rarely realized. Rachel and I have been in a number of small groups, but no small group have we been in in all of our years as Christians. We've been in a number of small groups. The only small group that has come close to what I'm envisioning is a small group we've been a part of for the last 15 years, three couples, and we have gotten together as often as we could. We lived in Denver, now we live in Charlotte. That makes a big difference to our group. It can't be the same. We're living so far away. But for 15 years, we were together in a group that was safe for God's work in each of us, and that meant some difficult times in our small group. And what we would do, and what I do in our school of spiritual direction, those who have been to it are very familiar with this, we would share in our small group, we would actually, at the advice of one of the members of the small group, it wasn't mine, so I'm not trying to push myself on this, but the, he encouraged us to go through the, the book called uh, Six Love Letters that I wrote. And we would go through that for about two or three years. We'd just take a, a book at a time and see what I wrote about it and then read the actual Bible, which is just a little bit more important. And, um, and then we would say, all right, based on what we've read in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, what, what, what is our red dot? You know, you go into a shopping center you're unfamiliar with, you see a directory, you see a red dot, um, and then a, a line calling it, you are here. What, what is your red dot? Where, where are you right now on your spiritual journey? And as you've read the scriptures, as you've, as, you've, as you've pondered Genesis and what the love letter is, what, what, what has it brought to mind as to what your red dot is? What is your spiritual journey like? And we were safe for each other to speak words into each other's souls, and there was a sensitivity to it. There was a realization that we would often speak in a way that impacted another person poorly. And we got honest about where when, when somebody would share, another would, would feel kind of put down or judged and that would, that would become a topic of conversation because we don't want to do that. We want to be Hebrews 10.24 to each other. And there was not only a, a certain safety, there was a sensitivity, but there was also a mood of we're not going to try to fix people. We're all natural born fixers. Think how easily when somebody shares a problem, you have a solution, maybe a Bible verse. And have you ever noticed how when you share a problem, sometimes people prematurely pray? as opposed to hearing what you want them to pray about um, and hearing what really needs prayer. But sometimes premature prayer is a way to hide from our own inadequacy. We don't know what to do, so I'll pray for you. As opposed to being curious about what's really going on in your life so I can pray intelligently for you. And the last thing I'm going to say comes from Jean-Paul Sartre, the famous French atheist philosopher. He had one good thing to say. The sentence that I've drawn from, drawn from Sartre that I really love, every finite point derives its meaning from its infinite context. My life's a finite point. My interaction with you over lunch or in a small group is a finite point. Is the context of my moment with you in a small group or over dinner, whatever it might be, is the context for that particular existential moment of this smaller story, finite point, is a context, the infinite story of God that's being told. Can I realize that God has a plot to his story that Jesus has made possible and the Spirit is now implementing? The plot is to fill the universe with people just like his son to bring glory to the Father. 
and to bring pleasure to the Son and to see the Spirit's work just moving so deeply in each of our lives. If I can get a hold of that, if I can be thinking of the larger story of God while I live in the smaller story of my life under the Son, then it just might be that our small group could be an opportunity for paracritic relating that helps us see our new purity and our new identity and our new appetite and our new power. And those are my thoughts on what a church might be. Folks, we have about five minutes. And um, if anybody has a comment or a question, I'm open to it. And I promise to answer every question. And the, the answer might be, I haven't got a clue. But I will say something in response to any question you ask or a comment you want to offer. Anything you want to say? Any comments at all? Any questions at all? We just have a couple of minutes. If you have one, here's one right up here. Any I've got a microphone coming to you. Hi, uh, Larry. Any suggestions is, uh, on a different? Is there any di- major difference in relating having relational um, wealth with a non-believer versus a believer? Uh, talking to a believer about a non-believer, or talking to a non-believer? No, just just having the experience of relational wealth with. Say maybe my daughter who's not a believer. I see what you're saying. And I can hear the, the, the passion with which you've asked the question. I think I have some, some feel for that. Um, in talking with a non-believer, I'll tell you, one thought comes to mind. It's a very important question. I wish we had an hour to talk about it. Um, there was an old church father, um, a desert father actually, in the third or fourth century, Somebody, was, somebody came to him and said, I'm, I'm not successful in my evangelism attempts to lead people to Christ. Any, any thoughts on how I can relate to this unbeliever? That, that question was distinctly asked to this church father, or desert father. And the man said something that I think is brilliant. It's a very simple sentence, but it has a lot of implications that might be worth chewing on. He said this, Never answer a question that the quality of your life has not provoked someone to ask. The issue is that if your daughter is not asking questions that open the door to the gospel, then you're knocking on a, on a locked door. And your opportunity as a dad is to be thinking about some of that we talked about today. What was it mean? What would it mean to show something of the character of love without any sense of impositional judgment or pressure? until that daughter feels completely safe knowing that you long for her to become a believer but there's nothing in you that's oh come on honey but there's everything in you that you you mean the world to me and the degree to which you're expressing that kind of a love um, as you continue to do that not that you haven't been I'm sure you have but as you continue to do it more deeply every day that can sometimes, and this is up to the Spirit of God, not up to me or up to you, that can sometimes provoke a question within her that will give you an opportunity to speak richer gospel truth to her than you're able to speak until your life has provoked the question. And I think that's a very important point. I got really energized by my father's quality of life to read my Bible. He and I were both fans when I was 10 years old of Red Skelton Comedy Hour back when television was good. You remember that? It was on Tuesday night, 10 o'clock, I think, and one night I went in to start the TV, an old-fashioned black and white, you know, rabbit ears and all this. You got a, the 10 minutes preparation, a little white circle that expands into a picture eventually. 
adjust the rabbit ears. And Dad and I used to love watching Red Skelton together, but he wasn't there. And I said, Dad, Red Skelton's on. And he said, I'm into something else tonight, Larry. going to skip it. Couldn't figure out why he was going to skip Red Skelton. He loved it. And I went to find him. He was in his, in his chair in the living room. He was reading. And I thought, what are you reading for when you can watch television? And, and then I looked up what he was reading. reading his Bible. And I looked over his, I, I, I crept up behind him. He was reading Leviticus. And I thought, why would anybody read Leviticus when Red Skelton is on? I went to find my Bible, and it took me 10 minutes to find it. And I turned to Leviticus, read four or five verses about you know, calves' hoofs or something, I forget. Bored silly, closed it, went back and watched Red Skelton. But ever since, it provoked a question in me. What is so interesting in Leviticus that I'm missing? Now, it took years for me to actually read Leviticus, but that got me started. The quality of his life provoked a question within me. And that's one different example that I hope might be a little bit of encouragement to you as you pray for your daughter. Time for one more? Any other comment, question, thought? I'm good that I was, I'm glad that I was totally clear and there was no confusion whatsoever. I appreciate that. I want to close in prayer and then Sonia's going to come up and dismiss us. Let me just pray one more time. Father, you're more aware than anybody that I'm teaching over my head and that my life doesn't match my teaching any nearly as well as it could. I don't relate paracritically very often. Father, you've, in your word, through your spirit, you've opened up a vision for us to think what it could be like in the community of God's people. I pray that we'll have the courage to acknowledge that in so many ways there's still an ache in our soul that even in the best marriage and even with kids that are doing so well and know the Lord and those with children that don't know the Lord, everybody, there's an ache. Father, teach us that, that that ache becomes an opportunity, not something to be squelched, an opportunity to depend on you opportunity to look forward to the day and in the meantime to learn what it means to love like Jesus. Equip us and envision us and get us moving in those directions if they're really your will. Whatever I've said that doesn't conform to your scripture, help us to forget it immediately. And whatever I've said that comes out of your word, may it find a resting place in each of our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To learn more, visit LargerStory.com.